I mean, um, it was great to hear from Steve. As he said, I used to be here at Table. My uh, office was in 1991. It was in the photocopier room. That was before they found out that um, photocopy stuff is carcinogenic. So if I fall over, you know that it finally hit me. Um, we were here for two and a half years, I think, nearly three years, uh, Tabor. It didn't look like this then. It was a bit, uh, bit grotty when we were here, and it, it, it's amazing. I'm really impressed. So it's great to be here. I don't know about you, I was trying to rack my brains, but I think there was a game show or something they used to do on uh, Hey Hey It's Saturday where they would get people to pretend that they were, say, a carpenter or a race car driver. And there would be three or four people and they would all answer questions and at the end uh, the, the, the thing was, will the real carpenter or the real car driver please stand up? And you'd, you'd have picked someone out, and before you know it, someone else would stand up. Well, I feel sometimes it's a bit why we view God. Let me read to you from one of the most famous atheists in the whole world, and where better to do it than North Fitzroy, by the sounds of it. Uh, Richard Dawkins wrote this. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynist, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. The psalmist in Psalm 106, 107, 136 begins by saying, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Richard Dawkins again wrote, Jesus is a huge improvement over the cruel ogre of the Old Testament. However, Jesus in Mark 9 says, If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone was hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands and go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter at life crippled than to have two feet and to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So the question I have is, who is a real God? Do we as Christians end up presenting to the world two different gods? As Chris was talking about, the wrathful God and the loving God, the merciful God and the angry God. Sometimes we find ourselves apologising for God. Oh yes, but God's not really like that. We read the Bible or someone's read the Bible and they've read a story and they come back to you and say, but how can God be like this? And you go, oh no, but that's not really God. And they say, but it's in the Bible. Yeah, but I don't know how to handle that. Hebrews 1.3, which Chris read, amazingly, says that, God, that Jesus is the exact representation of Yahweh or God. If Jesus is like God, then what does the God of the Old Testament look like, really? Have we misread him? Have we misrepresented him? 
Well, this is not a new question. Back in the second century, a man called Marcion decided that the easiest way to solve the problem was to get rid of the Old Testament. So he basically said, let's have a Bible without the Old Testament. We don't need to worry about the Old Testament anymore because we're New Testament Christians. At the same time, he got rid of everything except Luke and Paul's writings. It was a very slim Bible. would have been a very cheap version to produce. But the question I have today is, will the real God please stand up? Who is the real God? And it's important for us because we have a relationship with God. We claim a relationship with God. But if we're not sure who God is, what kind of relationship is it? Is it built on fear? Is it built on, we're not too sure, is he going to smite me today or is he going to love me today? If we're not sure of who God is, how can we really relate to him? And I've been teaching the Bible for a long time and reading it and I've come up I do agree there are some issues in the Bible about who God is. And so I just want to touch on three of them briefly today and give you some illustrations and hopefully they will help you understand and maybe raise some questions and answer some questions. And so I'm going to make three statements which I think I can prove from the Bible and we'll see where we go from there. The first statement I want to make is the New Testament God is an angry God and the Old Testament God is a loving God. Let me repeat that. The New Testament God is an angry God. The Old Testament God is a loving God. Now I can prove that to you. If you take your Bibles and you open the Bibles on your table to Mark chapter 11. If we turn to Mark chapter 11, which is in the New Testament, and if uh, Jesus is the uh, depiction of God, the representation of God in the New Testament. He is New Testament God. Let's see what Jesus does. In Mark chapter 11 and verse 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Then we go down to verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise throughout the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. This is an angry Jesus. In John, it tells us he took a whip and put the whip together and then went in and actually whipped the people out of the temple. This is a New Testament depiction of God, and he's angry. Yet we turn to the Old Testament. Let's turn to Exodus chapter, Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 34, and... Here we have God talking about himself. Now let's call the God of the Old Testament Yahweh because that's the name that he asked to be called by. So if we call the God of the Old Testament Yahweh and the God of the New Testament Jesus, we might get confused. So Exodus chapter 34. God is about to, or Yahweh is about to give Moses the, the Ten Commandments for the second time. 
He, the stone tablets have been destroyed because of the golden calf and now we have this situation. And in verse uh, 5, the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, and your version would say the Lord, but it's actually the word Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and loving, sorry, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Here, Yahweh describes himself as slow to anger and abounding in love. In fact, the word for love here is hesed. And hesed is is the main way in which we understand the God of the Old Testament. Yahweh is hesed. And hesed is the word that means steadfast love, loyalty, faithfulness, kindness, mercy. It's the kind of love that a devoted parent feels for their child. It's the kind of love that a faithful spouse feels for their partner. Throughout the Old Testament, Yahweh shows his hesed to his people. He shows hesed to Abraham in giving him the promised son. He shows hesed to Joseph in prison. He shows hesed to Israel when it's in exile. Yahweh's hesed is abundant. It is found throughout the Old Testament. It is found in the story of Ruth, where it says that because Ruth has shown hesed to Naomi and hesed uh, to her um, mother-in-law, sorry, it is my Naomi, then God in turn will show hesed to her. And it's also enduring. In this scripture in verse 7, it says, maintaining love to thousands. That's not thousands of people, that's thousands of generations. He's going to hold the sins of the parents against the third and fourth generations, but he's going to maintain his love to thousands of generations. And I would suggest to you that we're still part of those thousands of generations. So the God of the Old Testament is a loving God. But what do you do when God gets angry? And he tends to get angry in the Old Testament. Let's turn to a very familiar story, 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 6. And this is a story of David bringing the ark into Jerusalem. Now there's a story behind this. The ark has been sitting in someone's cow shed for quite a while. And David has decided he wants to bring the ark into Jerusalem so people can worship Yahweh there. And as it is being brought along, in verse 6, when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Ooh, this is a great example of God getting angry. 
And we could, we could say, well, God is an angry God in the Old Testament and he does it for no good reason. The guy was just there, he's steadying the ark, he's preventing it from falling, and God goes and kills him. What a horrible God. We can't trust this God. And yet we need to unpack the story a little bit more to understand why God responds as quickly as he does. First of all, this is a very public situation. All of Israel, 30,000 people are travelling with the ark. They're watching it come into the situation. And what they notice is going to be important for their relationship with God. First of all, the ark is not being carried properly. If you remember your Sunday school, which you probably don't, how was the ark meant to be carried? It was meant to be carried with poles inserted through the rings in the side of the ark and on the shoulders of uh, the Levites. This was the way that royalty was carried. If you were royalty in those days, you had a chair and people put, you know, their, put the chair on the, on the sticks, the rods, and they carried you through. Here they have, however, first of all, the Levites aren't doing the carrying, and secondly, they've thrown it on the back of a cart. Now, in those days, royalty never rode in the back of a cart. A cart was where you put things. You know, you might put a goat, you might put, you know, a wash basin or whatever you had to transport. But it wasn't the place for royalty. And the Ark of the Covenant was supposed to signify the presence of Yahweh amongst his people. It was where the tablets containing the Ten Commandments were stored. It was a very precious, holy thing, and they'd thrown it on the back of a cart. Hadn't worried to check out who should be carrying it and just send it on its way. So here we have disrespect. Added to that, because it was a holy thing, it was never to be touched. It was dangerous to touch the ark. Particularly if you were not a Levite and you were not a priest. And so when God strikes user, he is publicly making a statement to the people of God to say, you are disrespecting not only me, but you are disrespecting the relationship that you and I should have. And I cannot let this pass. I have to deal in order to show you how serious our relationship is and how precious it is and how important it is for me. Most of the times in the Old Testament when God shows this kind of anger, it is linked to justice. God is coming and wreaking justice on a certain place or a certain group of people. It's mostly because the relationship between God and his people has been cheapened. Many times it's because of blatant rebellion against God. The people have done something that is so horrible and shows that they are no longer in relationship with God. And often it takes place after a long time of wickedness or rebellion. God doesn't just turn up and smite people because he feels like smiting people. He allows, because of his long-suffering, he allows wickedness 
and injustice to continue to the point where he can no longer allow it to go on. And then in anger, he deals with it. We call that righteous anger. Is it the same with Jesus? I think it is. We know that Jesus actually cleansed the temple twice, once at the beginning of his ministry and once at the end of his ministry. I find it interesting that having cleansed the temple once, it made no impact. By the time he gets back three years later or two and a half years later, they're doing the same thing over again. And what was being expressed here was anger that the relationship that people will have with God whereby they could go to the temple and worship him in solitude and peace had been defiled by turning it into basically Kmart. If you wanted to go worship God, you had to go through this area where everyone was trying to sell you something. God had been cheapened. I guess as I was preparing this, I thought, well, when did I get angry last? With righteous anger. It's a long time ago. Last time I got angry was when an, uh, an Indian man came to the door and tried to get me to change my power supplier. I've done that four times. Four times in the last three years I've changed my power supplier because they insist that they're giving you a better deal and that they're the only ones that can do retail in your area or whatever. I don't know. I'm a, I'm a sucker. I go, oh, yeah, that must be right. But it really made me angry because almost as he, I'm signing on the dotted line right near the end, he says, and we can change your rate at any time. I went, oh, great, good, that's really helpful. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, if God is slow to anger and loving throughout the Old and New Testament, there are some instances where anger does come up. It's righteous anger. What are we angry about as Christians? I lived in the United States in the 1980s, which was at the height of the anti-abortion, uh, you know, Christians bombing abortion clinics. That's a case where it's, I don't think it's righteous anger. I think that's where anger has overwhelmed love. God manages to maintain love and anger at the same time, love and justice. What are we angry about What is North Fitzroy Church of Christ righteously angry about enough to do something about it? Because we serve a God who is righteously angry, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Tempered with hesed love, long-suffering, abounding in love, but we get angry. We're supposed to get angry about things of injustice in our world. So the question is, will the real God please stand up? My second statement, which I think I can support from Scripture, is that the New Testament God is a vengeful God and the Old Testament God is a gracious God. The New Testament God is a vengeful God. The Old Testament God is a gracious God. We're all very familiar with Acts chapter 5. It makes us a little bit squirmy at times, particularly when the offering gets taken up. Acts chapter 5. New Testament church has been in existence for a very short amount of time and um, 
People are selling their land and laying their profits at the feet of the disciples. It's all voluntary. It's done because people love God. And along come Ananias and Sapphira who sell a piece of property. He keeps back part of the money and brings the rest, puts it at the apostles' feet. Paul, sorry, Peter's not concerned that he hasn't given all his money. He doesn't care two hoots. You know, God, God doesn't need our money, but it's the fact that he lies. Peter says, so um, have you kept any for yourself? And he goes, oh, no, no, I gave the lot. And at that point, uh, God comes down and smites. In the New Testament, there's a smiting in the New Testament, and Ananias drops dead. And not very long after, his wife comes in, goes through the same palaver, tells the same lie, and she also drops dead, having been smitten. Smitten by an angry God. So the New Testament God is an angry God. Seems to me that we have um, vengeance taking place, pretty quick, swift justice in the New Testament. Have you ever noticed what the response of the church was? Uh, In verse 11, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. The New Testament God was not a God to be messed with. You couldn't lie in this new community and get away with it. So if the New Testament God is vengeful, what about the Old Testament God? Let's turn to Jonah. I love old Jonah. Poor Jonah, he gets a bum deal because he's not the most... uh, most um, responsive and obedient prophet that ever lived. Uh, Jonah chapter 4 and verses 1 to 3. Jonah has been asked to go and prophesy uh, that the Ninevites will be destroyed. And he hates the Ninevites. The Ninevites are like the Nazi German, Germans of the Second World War. No one wants them to be spared, least of all Jonah. He runs away from it, comes back, does his job, and at the end, God spares the Ninevites. This gets right up Jonah's nose. It's the last thing he ever wanted to have happen, and he's mad as you can get. And this is what he says in uh, chapter 4 and verses 1 to 3. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to foresee, forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. And he gets so cross, he says, Okay, kill me now. That's how mad he is. Kill me now don't want to serve you anymore. So here we have a great example of a gracious God in the Old Testament. So gracious that he prevents the Ninevites, who are the hated, most awful people that ever lived the earth for about 200 years. They were just horrendously awful people, cruel, vicious, barbaric, and he spares them because their cattle repented. Oh, that cows would repent. I love that idea, that the cows uh, even were fasting at the same time. It's great. So we have a gracious God in the Old Testament and a vengeful God in the New Testament. But what about Old Testament times when it looks like God's being vengeful? 
Probably the most important question anyone ever asks is what about the Canaanites being killed? What about when Joshua went into the promised land and God said to him, kill everything? Surely that's a horrible thing to do. Well, in Joshua chapter 10 and verse 40 and 11, 12, we have two instances where it appears that that was carried out. But we need to understand a few things before we condemn the God of the Old Testament as being a vengeful God who just hates the Canaanites for no good reason. Firstly, it's very clear that God is punishing the Canaanites for their wickedness. The Canaanites were uh, involved in awful religious idolatry. Their religion included child sacrifice They were um, into sorcery and divination. When Israel was passing through the wilderness on the way to get to the promised land, having left Egypt, they were attacked by the Canaanites uh, in the middle of the desert. They had no defences and they were ruthlessly attacked. When Israel moves into the land, they are not moving in to take over a land that is not theirs. This is the land that God has promised to them. He promised Abraham 400 years previously that this was their land. In fact, they owned little bits of the land. So it is a group of people trying to re-establish their homeland. This compares favourably with the hated Assyrians, whose capital was Nineveh, who used to go in and whenever they took over a country and just, they would destroy everything and they would take everyone captive or kill them all. The Canaanites had had 400 years to repent for the sin of the Amorites. In Genesis 15, God says, you're going to go into captivity for 400 years, says to Abraham, and we're going to deal with the Amorites, but it's going to take a while because their sin, their wickedness is not yet complete. They've had 400 years to repent. The Ninevites repented in three days. It took three days for Jonah to walk through um, Nineveh and preach. I think it was three or was it seven? Seven. And, um, and they repented. The Canaanites they're not going to repent. The next thing we need to know, it was quite culturally acceptable in those days to completely and utterly destroy your enemies. Now, it's not acceptable for us. For us, it's abhorrent. But for uh, the Old Testament peoples, that would have been not only acceptable, it would have been expected. What is interesting is there's only two instances where we see that this actually seems to have happened. And we are quite clear by the end of Joshua and into Judges that they did not get rid of all the Canaanites. In fact, at the end of the conquest, it's quite clear that we have Israelites living next door to Canaanite neighbours. It causes a whole heap of problems. It's going to continue to cause problems for hundreds of years. But They didn't get rid of everyone. And in fact, God didn't ask them to destroy every in every situation. He said, drive them out of the land. He didn't say, kill every Canaanite that ever lived. Now, that might not appease you. Um, 
it's not easy to answer this one and there's a whole heap of cultural things that we might not agree with and because we live in a 21st century world where our ethic is so much different than a you know a, a, a thousand years before the time of Christ when this is going on we find it difficult to cope with but God does not come down and get rid of people and deal with them harshly and be vengeful just because he's a capricious God. He does it for certain reasons. We might not agree with his reasons, but he does it. In the same way that he deals with Ananias and Sapphira, he deals with the Canaanites. I think I'm a vengeful person. I don't know about you, but when I'm driving along and someone cuts in front of me, I'm not willing to wait too long. I'd like to deal out vengeance right then and there. You know, you have fantasies of ramming the back of someone's car. Anyone ever had that? Maybe it's just me. Maybe none of you ever had those thoughts. Maybe someone's slighted you. Maybe someone's hurt you. And occasionally we kind of go, hmm, be nice to take a bit of vengeance, slash a few tyres, you know, do a few things. I'm just, I'm, I'm being quite open there. There's a few people I could like to deal with in some ways. But that's not my job. My job is to be loving and kind and gracious and forgiving and let God do the vengeance. Although there's a lot of prayers and there's a lot of psalms where people go, well, God, get on with it. You're a bit slow. And I've prayed those prayers. You know, vengeance is yours, Lord, but hurry up and do it because I want to see justice done. We have to live with the tension of knowing that God is abounding in love and gracious at the same time as he's a God who deals with sin. Now in the New Testament, we have the cross of Christ that prevents instant judgment in most cases. But we are deserving of being smitten or smoted, whatever you want to use. We deserve it every day. The question is not why do bad things happen to good people, but why do good things happen to bad people? Because I'm a bad person. I deserve bad things, but God gives me good things. We've got it all around the wrong way because we're, you know, we live in the Western world where we're individual and we think that everything should be work out fine for us. And so when things don't go right, we go, what have I done wrong and why aren't you a good loving God? God is good. And lastly, let me just say that the New Testament God is racist and the Old Testament God is accepting. Ooh, where on earth would Jesus show racism? Okay, turn to Matthew 15. There's a whole heap of other things we could do. We could do sexism. Um, you know, is God a sexist? We might do that another time. Um, there's all kinds of things that God is accused of being. Matthew 15. We have this beautiful little story of Jesus' encounter as he goes north out of Israel and into Tyre and Sidon. And in some translations it says a Canaanite woman came to him. Others it said a Syrophoenician woman. Same, same thing. People living in that area, they are not Jewish. They are not followers of Yahweh they do not believe in Yahweh. And she comes to him in verse 21. 
Oh, sorry, verse 22. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering ter- terribly. Jesus did not answer a word, so his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away if she keeps crying out after us. Now, you and I would be going, he's going to heal her. Jesus heals everyone. Why is he waiting? Just get on with it. Of course he's going to heal her. He, he heals it. Why wouldn't he? And then Jesus says this interesting thing. I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. That's a racist comment. He's basically saying, I was only sent for the Jews, not for you lot. You're not Jewish. And she comes and she goes, oh, Lord, help me. And he says, well, no, it's not right for me to take the children's bread, in other words, the Jewish people's bread and give it to isn't this a lovely term the dogs Jesus is calling a woman and her race a race of dogs but then she answers and says yes but Lord surely even the dogs get the crumbs that fall from the table and he goes ah good answer you understand you have faith your daughter's healed now, if we were to read this out of context and we were to read it on its own, not understanding that Jesus' mission was first was to the Jewish people primarily, not to the Gentiles, and that the Jewish people were to accept the gospel. And even Paul says we'd take it first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. We could easily say, well, this Jesus is a racist. And yet when we look back in the Old Testament, we find that God is not racist. God accepts everyone. Great story. 2 Kings 5. We're not going to read it, but I'll tell you the story. 2 Kings 5. Love the stories in 2 Kings. Great story. We all know it. We probably learned it at Sunday school. Um, Israel and Syria have been at war for about 100 years. Well, they're at war for about 100 and plus years in this period. And they have a general in Syria, and his name is Naaman. And Naaman is a terrorist. And Naaman, uh, God gives Naaman victory. Isn't that interesting? God gives the enemies of God victory over Israel? Hmm, isn't that interesting? Um, And Naaman is a terrorist, and he's also a kidnapper. He's kidnapped this young Israelite girl and taken her back to his home. And Naaman gets struck down with leprosy, which in those days is basically a death sentence. He's going to be ostracised. He can't be used anymore in the army, etc., etc. So the little slave girl comes to him and expressing the love of Yahweh for all people suggests that she knows a way that he can get healed. And so Naaman, the Syrian general who does not believe in Yahweh at that point, turns up at Elisha's doorstep and says, heal me. And Elisha, who has every right to say, I'm not healing a Syrian. Come on, you're pushing it. I'm not here to heal every Syrian, Assyrian, Hittite who turns up on my doorstep. Instead, Elisha graciously says, go dip in the Jordan seven times. And I love this. Naaman is classically... Uh, elitist he goes we have better rivers in Damascus 
Why would I dip in the Jordan when I can dip in Damascus rivers? And uh, finally he humbles himself, goes get, gets dipped in the Jordan seven times and is healed. This is a classic example of God's acceptance of those who are outside of Israel. Think of Ruth. Ruth is a Moabitess. God takes Ruth, protects her, and allows her to be the great-grandmother of David. Rahab, the prostitute, two strikes against her. She's Canaanite and she's a prostitute, and she's the one that God makes sure is saved when they start to conquer the land. The Ninevites, horrible, horrible people, God relents and spares the city for about 120 years before they do finally get judged. And the Mosaic law, if you want to read those awful laws in Leviticus, which are tedious and you never wonder what's going on, tell us that the Israelites are commanded again and again and again, that they are to care and protect the widow, the fatherless and the alien or the sojourner or the foreigner in your midst. When we read the Old Testament, we can get the feeling that God plays favourites. He chooses Israel and he seems to lavish Israel with all this love and protection and all this other stuff and he goes to war for them. But we need to understand that the reason Israel was chosen was not because they were any better than anyone else, but God had to have a vehicle through whom Jesus would come And this nation is to be a blessing to other nations. The role of Israel was to be a light on a hill that the other nations would be drawn to, that they would want to worship this God of Israel. Unfortunately, the nation of Israel got it wrong so often that we have very few instances where other nations want to know the God of Israel. We have this situation here and now in our country. I am shocked when I speak to people about refugees. It would, it would seem as if we have lost our compassion as Christians. I'm not talking about the politics involved. I'm talking about how do we respond? Is God the same God of the Old Testament and the New Testament? The God of the New Testament who accepts all into the community of Christ? What does that mean for us as Australian Christians when we think about the refugee situation? How do we respond? And so in answer to the question of will the real God please stand up, I think the God we see in the Old Testament, Yahweh, would stand up and say, I am loving, I am gracious, and I am accepting. And Jesus in the New Testament would stand up and say, I am vengeful. I am angry. And I sometimes appear racist. Now, I'm not depicting Jesus as that completely, and I'm not comp- depicting the Old Testament God that way completely, because what we have is we have the same God. When we read the scripture, we must be asking ourselves and not making presuppositions that, oh, God of the Old Testament, well, he's the angry one with the the smiting rod on his uh, right arm and he's about to whack me, as Chris said. 
And oh, Jesus in the New Testament, he's loving, he's kind, he's wimpy. He never does anything to upset people. Have a look at Mark and find out how many times he says something nasty about the Pharisees. How many times he mentions hell and judgment. And we find out that Jesus doesn't fit the stereotype of the wimpy God. And so as I finish, I I think the challenge is for us is to, as Christians, understand who God is so that we will be able to relate to him. As I read through the Old Testament, I am struck again and again by the love and the grace and the long-suffering of God. And that's the God we worship. And I am struck again and again in the New Testament by the loving, gracious actions of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the God who we worship as well. Amen. Did you want some... Questions? Of course, we don't have time for that, so I don't have to answer that. <laughs> oh, dear. Any curly questions that you've always wanted to ask? Yes, Louise, I'll get you later. Yeah. I think we, we don't understand the big narrative, so we, we go oh, there's a story here, and we forget that it's all part of God's redemptive plan. In the Old Testament, God starts from the Garden of Eden at the fall, and everything he does is leading towards the cross to bring people back into relationship with him. And we have a lot of things that go along there, and we have to keep that in mind. And we have to keep asking the question, what does this story tell me about God? And very rarely do we ever get the answer, God is an angry God. We get Micah the answer, God is a just God. Okay, God is not capricious. In other words, God doesn't change his mind from one day to the next. So, yeah, we have to keep reminding ourselves. And the cross is the climax. The cross is... And because we're New Testament Christians, we read the Old Testament through the lens of the cross. Other question? Yeah. Yeah. Well, God, uh, Jesus is a God of peace, and, and Jesus promotes peace just as the Old Testament God promotes peace. If you read stories in the Old Testament, God is the one who kind of brokers peace between nations and between people. Um, And Jesus continues that. Jesus refines the the teaching and the law in the Old Testament. He summarises it in two things. You know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength and uh, love your neighbour as yourself. And, you know, if you keep those two in mind and you look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, you see that Jesus just retells it to the people of God and says this is the way it is. Um, I think Jesus is sanitised a little bit. We kind of read the good bits and we make him into a little bit of a wimp. Having said that, I don't see Jesus was the activist that was expected to be the Messiah. So the people of God, the Jewish people, were expecting a Messiah who would come in, take out a sword and get rid of the Romans. And Jesus didn't do that. So he didn't fit their expectations. But I think we've kind of sanitised it um, 
in some ways we read Jesus through the lens of a 21st century cultural background instead of through the lens of what it was like in those days. Other quick question? I know I've gone on here. Yeah. bit like saying you know god gives the ark of the covenant and give says this is where i'm going to dwell although he's not there we know that his holiness dwells there and says this is a holy object and here are the rules for how you deal with it it'd be like you and i going into a nuclear storage facility and we pick up a container and it says these are the rules for how you handle this radioactive dangerous material now you and i would probably read those rules really carefully and make sure we did it because we realise the danger. And that was the same in the Old Testament. God's holiness, his otherness, his power. The people of Israel were very conscious of that. But by the time they got to moving the ark at that point, they really had used the ark a bit of as, as a magical symbol. They took it out into battle where it should never have gone. They kind of said, oh, if we take the ark out, we'll win. And they didn't win. The Philistines took the ark. And it had been languishing in someone's cow shed for years so it showed that they had lost the respect for what the ark was and of course we know that it went missing after the second you know when the temple was destroyed and it's ended up in a indiana jones found it and it's in a, a you know warehouse in the u.s government building somewhere <laughs> yeah hmm Yeah. No, you don't because you see it through the lens of Christ. Well, interpreting scripture, you have to put yourself in the place of the first audience. And you have to understand that the person who writes um, Joshua does not have an understanding of Christ, does not glimpse the cross, and God progressively reveals himself and his nature through scripture. And his ultimate revelation is through Christ and so to expect someone like Abraham to understand what we understand is wrong to expect the writer of the story of the conquest to understand what we understand is not possible because they are writing in a context where God has only shown so much of himself and the interesting thing is that when you start the Pentateuch the first five books God appears physically and with an audible voice because people don't know who this God is. Can you imagine Abraham, you know, worshipping a holy gods, you know, covering his bets, and all of a sudden he turns to worship Yahweh. Now, what must have happened in order for him to make that shift? He must have had a, 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 a really divine intervention and presence come on him. 
Now, by the time we finish um, Deuteronomy, we have less and less of those happening. And it's because as God reveals himself, they write it down, they relay that story, and then the next generation understand more about God. And so when we get to our side, we not only, from where we see, we see Christ, but we also have church history. A lot of our questions come out of the history of the church. You know, have you ever had anyone say to you, you know, Christians are barbaric. They, they did the Crusades. Now, there's nothing about Crusades in, in the Bible, but we live with all the history that we have accrued. And for many people, we have to apologise. We have to say we got it wrong. We still get it wrong. But we, we stand with such a heritage that we have and we have to live and work from where we're at. So does that answer your question? It's a difficult one. Um, I, I think we ask the question every time is, how is God revealed? Now, God, God doesn't change his character and nature, so God is revealed, but how people view it through the filter, of because they are human authors too, so we, we do filter things through our context, our cultural context. And so because of our 21st century ethics, we read the Old Testament and go, how horrendous. If you were living in those times, you'd just go, well, that's life. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Acts Now, what you need to recognise is this is the early church. This is a church in Jerusalem. They've only been going maybe five years, seven years. Okay, so they're still working out what it means to be a Christian community while being Jewish at the same time. And one of the things that Jews did was take care of the poor in their midst. And so the early church picked this up. And one of the things that we note in Acts chapter... 4 and verses 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Okay? And then it gives the example of uh, Barnabas who sells his field and brings it all and puts it at the disciples' feet. Now, that's, a, that's supposed to be the good example of people doing this. Now, we need to recognise this is a cultural and historical setting that does not continue. So we don't have evidence that this was the way that the church did it everywhere it was in the Roman Empire. But at this point, that's what's happening. And, and Barnabas' story is given as a good example of what's happened. Um, he um, sold a field and brought the money and put it at the um, apostles' feet. Now, the second thing with Ananias and Sapphira, the issue is not that they don't bring everything. It was completely voluntary. You didn't have to do it. But the issue that you see in verse 3 where Peter does say, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and keep yourself some of the money you received for the land? 
didn't it belong to you before you sold, after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to just human beings but to God. It seems to me that Ananias goes, Barnabas did it, I'm next, walks in, lays it all down, makes a big show of himself, look what I'm doing, how great am I, I'm following God, and giving the inference that he's giving his entire amount. Now, Peter's able to say, this is not right, and discerns that. To me, this is a very interesting passage because it becomes so early in the church's history, it shows the church very clearly that God is, has not changed, that you can't muck around with God. And, you know, if you read the Acts, there are a lot of things that happen. You know, people are made blind you know, God deals harshly with people in Acts. So it's not that God becomes this meek and mild, tamed God of the New Testament. And I think this was, a, this was more about lying to the Holy Spirit than it was about the actual giving of the money or not. And that's what needed to be dealt with was, was the consequence of deception in the ranks of the people because, you know, they just had Judas who... You know, deceive Jesus, so they didn't want to have. And of course, you know, Christians never embezzle ever, or lie. Not in my church, anyway. Yes. Sorry. Um, unless it can be proven otherwise, yeah, I probably am. Mm-hmm. I'd have to look at the example and check it out with you know, scholars from the Jewish background who it's their scripture firstly. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not adamantly saying that has to be every time, but I would, that would be my default position, yeah. That's it? Everyone's happy? Okay, there you go. Wonderful. Let's all thank Cheryl uh, for a w- great job. And... Um, that was outstanding. Thanks, Cheryl. It shows why we should, uh, should be uh, good students of theology. Just to finish off uh, in John chapter 8, Philip said, Master, show us the Father, then we'll be content. And Jesus responded, You've been with me all this time, Philip, and you still don't understand. To see me is to see the Father. And as uh, Chris pointed out earlier, Jesus is the exact representation of God. There is no distinction. I think uh, we want a God that's sanitized and created in our image rather than the image as uh, God is portrayed in Scripture. And I think you did a great job, Cheryl, in just providing us with some solid substance to kind of go with and and, and a a framework and a basis for understanding that. Let's all stand while we uh, finish with the benediction. Thanks. uh, Thanks, Bill. Yeah, I think Cheryl's convinced us we all should go to table. <laughs> Start to uh, really get to, get to know some stuff.
May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord uh, make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Go in peace. Amen.